what do you think I'm going to tell him? The headless horseman is mowing down people to bring about the end of day. For further questions, please call Ichabod Crane, the man who beheaded him in 1781. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Journalists, we take a little nap in Sleepy Hollow. Good morning, afternoon, evening, random point in your day. Um, so we're back with a new superhero show called Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> that, that follows the adventures of a nearly immortal horseman and their shenanigans. I mean, if you pitched Sleepy Hollow's superhero show, I, in retrospect, it, it's not that far from it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so in reality, what we're going to do is we're going to do um, a Halloween run. So it'd be about four or five episodes. And we've already got a special guest if things work out right for the final episode. It's almost like we're planning further in advance now than we were before. What? After uh, making shit up as a, we go a long run. No more, my friend. We're now both full professionals. I I am prepared to tell people the the podcasting academy that I graduated from. <laughs> well, see, that was potentially our chick for like a year and a half now. Is like I'm the one who tries desperately to keep us organized, and you're the one who just keeps going off on a terrace. And now you're the one coming to the podcast saying, "No, we have preparation." And I'm like, "What? What's going on?" So our roles have reversed. Mm. But see, that's because we're in a sequel, and in the sequel, we have to do uh-huh. things differently. So we're both being badly written, is what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> Speaking of bad writing, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I, originally, I guess I don't know if I conceived the idea of a Halloween special or Eddie did or not. So I'm going to say we conceived it together. That sounds about at right. A, a moment of inspiration or when we were sitting there after a podcast and we both turned and looked at the camera and said, Halloween special. That is exactly <laughs> how it happened. You have a camera? Oh God. You've seen some things you probably shouldn't have seen then. I can make all these jokes about your bedroom. Do you really want <laughs> me to do that? Well, can I stop you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in short, for the Halloween special, we thought since when these will be airing, it should be around October-ish, and we needed something to, I'm not going to say clear our palettes a little bit, but get us back into the, the vibe that is genreless. So we like to look at different genres, we do short snippets of seasons of those genres, and we move on to something else. We're going to mm-hmm. try, I think, focus a little bit more on being agile again. Look at me using management terms. Wow. Dodge left and right. And so Sleepy Hollow. Um, Sleepy Hollow is a show that I saw when it first aired, and I loved the first season. I thought the first season was spectacular. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) we're going to address some of the issues around the show before we get into the awesomeness that is first season. Ah, so Sleepy Hollow came out around 2013, and it surprised everyone because who wants to see a show about Sleepy Hollow and a headless horseman and someone called Ichabod Crane? Like that, no one had any expectations. No. And so when the show hit, 
and it was a phenomenon, it was because of the incredible chemistry that we saw on screen between the leads. It was the incredibly diverse cast that was diverse almost without trying. And it Mm -hmm. felt like it was there. They were just all part of a world together. And even the writing was on par or at least matching what the actors were all doing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, later on, after some time later, I found out through, we'll say, the the internet news, which I even noticed watching the show because I watched all the way up through part of season two. But at the end of season, somewhere in season two, they lost me. Mm-hmm. But there's a distinctive shift in feel in the show from season one to two where it loses a beat. <clears throat> and now that is going to be some of the crux issue that I want to discuss, at least briefly, or meander around about how I'm doing right now. <laughs> For first season, the show had a more diverse writer's room. And they had, there was no expectation for the show, so they were taking a wild swing. When it became so successful, the showrunners allegedly at that point in time took a different direction and they believed that the reason the success for the show was the white male lead of the show. Mm-hmm. So they proceeded to, <clears throat> um, I think release the, the colored writers that they had, the, the people of color they had in the room, in the writer's room. They became overly defensive when anyone made any suggestions about how to change things for the black characters. Mm-hmm. And they continued to write the black characters out of the show. Also to the point where they were, I'm going to say it, terrorizing uh, Nicole Bahari and making and ostracizing her almost completely out of the show. And Mm -hmm. it's an entire group of people targeting one person. Because the show at the time was a phenomenon because you had a female black lead of a science fiction show. You can say it's fantasy, but it's it's a sci-fi fantasy show. Female black lead, almost unheard of at that time. And Ichabod, almost her first season, is more of her sidekick. Yeah. And they didn't realize that I think they had a very large black fan base is where the fans were. And when they Mm -hmm. started doing that, they lost more and more fans. And the show continued to digress until it finally ended with a fourth season because they had, this is probably one of the most racist things I can think of right now for the show, is they had I'm going to give you spoilers because I don't want you to watch the fucking rest of the show because it shouldn't exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Is they had Abby sacrifice herself for Ichabod saying her entire mission and story was to raise the white man up. That is how her character. She said that. Oh my God. On screen on, in season three finale. And they write out Frank, who is the captain of the police force, who is, the incredible Orlando Jones gets written out. And even in second season, his role diminishes and changes until it's the opposite of what it is here. Mm-hmm. And Jenny, who is a sister that I thought was incredible for the show was a trap door that the writers put in because almost from the pilot, they had problems. They f- had their own problems with Nicole Bahari and they were making a way if they wanted to release her from the show, they had a replacement character. So they were effectively making black people interchangeable which mm-hmm. is why Jeannie's character was there. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I've, I've prattled for a little bit, Eddie. Is there anything you would like to say? I could keep going, but. Uh, it, well, see, I have I have zero exposure to the show. I've right? not seen a single frame of the show until you recommended it to me or I put it forward for discussion. 
Um, and I did do some reading up beforehand. So I, I recognize that very likely my knowledge of what happened behind the scenes has tainted my viewing somewhat. Um, but uh, certainly at a high level, um, this is definitely a show that, I, even with the few episodes we saw, didn't know the lightning in the bottle it had. And hearing that each season basically came worse is not at all a surprise to me because uh, we've talked about this before. Even though we tend to look at first seasons of shows, um, the first season is not always the best indicator of quality because it's usually the show trying to figure itself out. And so when a show really, really hits in the first season, that's dangerous because if the creative team has a firm handle on why it's hitting so well, then the show can become amazing. If the team does not entirely understand why it's hitting so well, we have this show. Um, and so it's, I, I'm not adverse to, to, to messy shows. I mean, we talked about Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine, and those, those are shows we both love, but they're, they're messy. You know, they're, they, 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 they're not entirely well executed 100% of the time. Um, so that part doesn't bother me. Um, but even the few episodes we saw, it's, it's pretty clear that, like, the show's not, 100% sure what it wants to do. It's like we're, we're building an entire show around this, this myth, American myth. And from there, it, it gets a little weird. Which again, we're pretty good if you know what you're doing with it. But I, it, it, I never really, I felt like this, this could have been just season one jitters and then they would, you know, more consistently hit. Uh, if they knew what they're doing, but if they had that huge shakeup season two, then yeah, there was just no way they were going to recover from that. Right. And to the extent that I kind of want to reinforce how horrible they were to Nicole Bahari is, I want to say during season two, season three, both actors got sick, uh, Tom Meissen and Nicole Bahari, and they let Tom Meissen go back to England for about 30 days or so to recuperate. And they forced Nicole Bahari to continue to come into work and then do an entire episode almost by herself. Yep. Forcing her then afterwards to have, um, I want to say that was an audio immune deficiency hit her and they labeled her as difficult. And that devastated her career from that point on, even to now where she's just starting to come back. Mm -hmm. And she was a Juilliard yeah, I think she's, she got another, she got another lead until 2020, right? Yeah, and that was, I think, in uh, Miss Juneteenth is a movie that she made happen, is why she was mm. the lead in it. Okay. And she'd worked, she was in 42, it was like the opposite of Chadwick Boseman. She was, she is phenomenal. Um, so, Chris's corner, Chris's crush corner, I think Nicole <laughs> Bahari is amazing. Mm -hmm. I do. She's incredible. And to know that this show and these white showrunners did that to her. They labeled a uh, black woman as difficult to work with because of their own internal issues and i'm not they didn't ruin her career but they've definitely hard hard. Impacted. Mm -hmm. and as someone uh, myself that has been labeled difficult to work with because i state opinions and i want to be treated the same as other people i work with i i fully resonate with that more than i'm going to say on air today uh which continues to baffle me because I've never had that experience with you. But um, one thing I walked away from this show, honestly, at a level is I remember 
way back in season one of our show. Uh, you got on your little soapbox that we've now currently hey. established is kind of hey. gilded, but has stuff built off of it. And, you know, hey, it is, it is a moderate size soapbox because I am a man of a certain age and I need the extra support. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but you said that you really wanted to see more shows with uh, uh, leads of color or even black leads, but but leads of color um, who could just have shitty, crappy shows, right? Not not shitty as in quality, but just they don't have to be about something. They're just shows. And I definitely got that vibe watching this of like, oh, this is just a cool show that has a very diverse cast and that diverse cast definitely brings something extra to it. it it's it, they're, they're, they're not mm -hmm. just interchangeable as much as the showrunners apparently made it to be. I mean, they, they have a distinct role and flavor and vibe they're bringing to the show, but I was just like, it's not about their blackness. It's just, this is just who we are and we're just doing stuff and it's cool. And I, I was into that vibe. Um, it reminded me of, I know we were hard to it, but it reminded me of Cowboy Bebop. Cowboy Bebop is the same thing. It's like, you know, oh, look, we have two leads of color, and they're just doing cool space stuff because reasons. Thank you. I, I, although, I don't think we were that hard to Cowboy Bebop. I think we were actually gave it a lot more praise than other people that we were talking about the live action Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, yeah, live action one, yeah. And oh, God, no. We, we would never say such things about the, the, the animated version. No, that is sacrosanct. I, I want to say that we gave it a lot more praise than I think nearly any reviewer that I've seen. Oh, sure, sure. Partially because I wanted to counteract that nonsense. I loved the live-action Cowboy Bebop, but I also know we were a little more critical of it than perhaps we were of the animated version. Well, if we were to talk about being critical, I could did go and point us specifically to our episode about Batwoman. But uh, yeah, it's kind of the exact opposite of what happened here in a way, where the leaf was was the problem. Yeah, and was but we're we're now digressing because it's fun. Um, right. To give you an idea, one more last note is that so they kill Abby at the end of season three, and then they move the show. I read up, I read the Wikipedia thing because I'm not, I didn't watch it. Um, but they moved the show to Washington D.C. and made it more FBI focused, and they added in a new woman of color as Ichabod's partner, and a new black chief for the FBI, and tried to do that. Literally mm -hmm. trying to make you that people of color are interchangeable compared to the white lead that has to stay here. Right. It, it got canceled, by the way, right then. Good, because that's just uh, sounds bad. And there was even the massive hashtag. I was that was um basically uh, Abby deserved better. That went around with the show. Good, good. And it's interesting because I saw a a YouTube interview with Tom Meissen when they're asking him about the show later, and it was so interesting to watch him make very calculated statements and try to avoid traps mm -hmm. of speaking the truth too much. But, um, <laughs> so that is some of the, some of the, the, the back controversy around the show and the incredible Maureen Ryan actually released a book recently that deals with a lot of the different toxic environments in Hollywood. And a lot of it's focused on, a good chunk, I think, of the book is focused on people of color's interactions because in Lost, I forgot his name, but the black actor in the first or second season of Lost also had similar things happen to him. Mm -hmm. 
and that's also I think why he was no longer on the show. I could, I could go on. Hollywood is notorious for doing this. Right, and I know that um, one of the I'm not saying minor. Uh, I'm going to say uh, uh, less talked about aspects of the Writers Guild strike that's going on right now is that with streaming shifting models, they have been moving away from writers' rooms to what they're calling mini rooms, which are much shorter duration rooms. And one of the writer progressions that happen is that if you become a if you're in a writer's room for a long enough time, eventually you're tapped to eventually lead writers writers rooms, and that leads you towards things like showrunner or producer or director mm -hmm. credits. Um, and that's one of the things that's been coming up during the writer strikes that with these mini room structures, um, it, it it disproportionately punishes writers of color because they never get the opportunity to end up leading their own writers rooms because they don't have this this ephemeral check mark saying, oh, you've been in the writer room for a long period of time. You've been in a writer's room for nine months straight. You know the dynamic. Say, oh, you, you did five streaming shows. Yeah, it might be nine months total, but there's five different shows. So that doesn't count. And what other point I want to make that, that's tangentially related to that? Even if they have, even if your writer room has one person of color or one marginalized person in the room, that is not enough of a voice to make a solid impact. Because that person has to potentially go up against everyone else in that room. And every time they do that, they are potentially losing ground and people are less inclined to listen to them. Mm -hmm. And that is someone speaking from experience in my real work and in my TTRPG existence life. Mm -hmm. Yep. Any but other uh, com <laughs> comments about the controversy? Honestly, I mean, I, I think we, 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 we've covered that um, pretty thoroughly. Um, I'm glad we talked about it up front because, like I said, I, all, knowledge of that shaped my viewing of the show. So when I go into this, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to keep that in mind. Um, but also, I can absolutely see why people during the first season had no clue this stuff was going on. Mm -hmm. All right, let's uh, jump into it. Season one, episode one, pilot. In the town of Sleepy Hollow in 1781, Ichabod Crane decapitates a headless horseman in battle, but is mortally wounded himself and collapses. Both he and the horseman awaken in 2013 in the same small sleepy town. The latter kills the local sheriff, the Kurrigan, uh, August Corbin, yeah. and Crane is mistakenly arrested for his murder by... Abigail Mills. Crane claims that he's innocent of the murder and has just risen from several centuries sleep. Mill is inclined to believe Crane and together they learn that the horseman is actually death. One of the four horsemen and is seeking his head to summon the others to bring about the apocalypse. Mills and Crane recover the head before the horseman does. Thanks to the dream sent by Crane's former wife, Katrina executed centuries earlier for witchcraft. Mills and Crane also discover that Corbin has been keeping detailed files on the various mis mysteries in Sleepy Hollow. This is, when you say it all like that, it really reinforces this is a whole bunch of nonsense. In, in a good way. Like, like <laughs> when you said before, we're doing another superhero show, 
this kind of feels like a superhero show in that regard. It's like, we're doing this. We're for another concept at you. And there's nothing. And there's wife, but she's dead. But she was a witch. But she still talks to him because reasons. And also this guy has no head. And, you know, th this guy is dead. But he came back from the dead. And it's just like, what is going on? It's just... It's like a five-year-old telling a story on some level. Again, I'm not saying it in a bad way. It's just there's so much world building they clearly want to do, and they're trying to put it all in this pilot. And I usually wouldn't say this, but I loved it because it felt like the right balance, and it felt a lot like a Farscape episode. Mm -hmm. Is that you start at a at a pretty solid run, and by the end of it, you're at a dead sprint. And that is a great feeling for a pilot because it gives you so many hooks, so many things to catch on to, and it keeps you moving throughout the course of that entire time. Right. Um, and it stopped me from asking a question that took me like days after I watched this show to finally come to me, is why nobody connected the name Ichabod Crane, the Headless Horseman. Because like in this world, does that myth not exist? But then if it doesn't exist, then why are we? And then, of course, why is the Headless Horseman not Ichabod Crane, but a different person? I mean, there were lots of these little things of like, what? Um, but it was absolutely a fridge moment in the sense of I didn't even think about it. I was just so wrapped up in, and then this happened, this happened, this happened. Oh, that, that person's uh, pretty. Oh, that, that, that that's a fun accent. You know, it just kind of <laughs> wrapped up in, in all of the things that were happening. Um, and it very much sets up an occult mystery show very, very well. And I, I don't want to compare it too much to other shows, but um, if Moon Knight had done something similar, I would likely have a higher opinion of Moon Knight than I do. There's something about the mix of excitement that keeps you guessing almost from a jump at a faster pace. So it comes down almost for me as a viewer pacing. I think it's fair because Moon Knight was languid. I think we talked about that. Um, weirdly, for a 10-episode show, it ended up being a bit too slow and also crammed at the end. Um, the pacing was all off. We talked about that. Um, this one definitely had a very firm pace, but also, in a way, we're looking at kind of this weird hybrid in a sense of Justin 13. So they're, they're starting to do serialized television more frequently at this point, but it's still broadcast television. And broadcast television is a certain kind of clear, steady pace that needs to go across to take account for ad breaks. And you have to make sure that each time between ad breaks, there's something, a little hook that brings you to you come back after the ad. And that's, that's a very specific style of television that we just don't do in streaming age. Um, and you could see, even though you couldn't see the ad breaks necessarily, it's just a quick fade to black and back in. Um, you still get that sense of every time it went to black, there was something like, you know, that guy's dead. Oh, crap. Or, you know, what did she see? <laughs> um, you know, why is that guy now back in time? There was always something to kind of bring you back. And that gives it a certain paciness just by the nature of the broadcast television structure. Mm, very true. So for the, the first initial few scenes itself with Ichabod's fight with the horse with the horseman mm -hmm. was... For 2013, NUS television felt like it was very well done. As someone that's used to watching period pieces of British shows that have a higher standard, it has increased my level of noticing detail in historical pieces. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give them a, a small compliment for that because it was quick enough 
and done well enough that it felt to be top notch. Yeah, I, when I first watched my watched first episode, I was like, "That's a really cool scene," and I'm glad I liked it because I'm going to see versions of that scene every time we watch an episode of the show. <laughs> they filmed, they spent all the money and filmed that scene from as many angles as possible so they can use that scene throughout the entire season. <laughs> but it was good. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> It goes back to proper planning and budget, though, because all shows yes. have a very finite amount of budget. So you try to maximize that as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, it's it's one of those why like I said before, um, I could see why people who watched this first season didn't realize how much was going on behind the scenes. You know, that kind of duck floating with the furious paddling under the water, because this show looks like a show where everyone cares what's going on. Right. There's attention to detail that's happening. There's um, a level of performance that's happening that's not quite typical for 2013 television, although that pretty quickly changes. It's like one of the areas where that changes pretty fast. Um, it, it feels like a show that's frankly punching above its weight. It's like this is a show that was very likely greenlit by someone said, I don't know. What's public domain? Make about crane? Sure. Let's make a show based on that. Here's $12 million. Um, and everyone, the team going, okay, we're going to make the best damn biblical occult mystery show we could possibly make. And also have Ichabod Crane in it. Um, <laughs> and they did, they, they, it's clearly what they're trying to do. It's like, we're, we're going to elevate the hell out of this extremely thin material. It is, but it is great. They managed to use two of Irving's works. In this one show, they take Sleepy Hollow and they take Rip Van Winkle and they yeah. them up together to give it to you. Like, yes, I, I, as a writer, I want to say mm, chef's kiss to that. I love it. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, and it was also a nice sci-fi nod for people in the know to have the Kurrigan there as a, a caring figure for Abby to sort of instantly build a little bit of bond for him to then. Have him decapitated. Right. I was waiting for the quickening. I was looking for Connor. Nowhere to be seen. Damn the clouds. And uh, now we're getting into one of the areas where it, it, it's, I could, the show's not entirely sure what it's trying to do. Um, because, okay, the headless horseman has his head cut off. Comes back with a glowing axe. We cut somebody else's head off. Okay, great. I did not know watching it that was going to be a running gag of people being decapitated in increasingly implausible ways. <laughs> are, are you kidding me? I, I knew that first time watching when he hit Ichabod. I was like, that's, that's a very large cut they put on Ichabod. Huh. And then after he decapitated the Kurrigan and they said it was carterized, I was like, that is his magic weapon. I will see a lot of that throughout the course of this show. Honestly, I think the reason why is, I think to your point, I got thrown off because I thought it was an inside joke about Clancy Brown. Is mm. it's Clancy Brown? Let's cut his head off because Highlander, and that, then we'll, we'll move on to other weird supernatural weapons. No, no, he's going to cut every motherfucker's head off in this show. <laughs> but that—that's the whole point because the Kurrigan is the first head we see him cut off in the show, like. Right. Oh, yes, oh. no, that that is fantastic. Oh. And it's always and, good to see Clancy Brown getting some live action work because he's a fantastic voice actor these days, but he doesn't get him a lot of live action work anymore. So I'm glad to see him get some more. Yeah. 
And he gives us our first bit of expedition dump that we learn about Abby. Mm-hmm. We know that she saw something at some age and that she is overly qualified to be a sheriff, which is why she's going to the FBI. Like all within 30 seconds. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nice little picture. And I, um, again, this is American primetime television. So if you're going to do an occult mystery, you can't be, lack of a term, too mysterious about it, you know? Um, yeah, you're shooting for a wider audience of people. And so some stuff I saw coming a mile away, like beginning the episode, it's like, she's going to go off to the FBI Academy and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, no, she's not. In the episode, she's going to stay in town. I know where that arc's going to go. I'm not surprised by that arc. But, yeah, and of course, like she saw something and she thought she was insane. Um, and then her and her sister were both kind of locked away. And it's like, okay, so they saw something that's, that's actually true, right? They, they, they saw something that we know is really true. Again, that's not a surprise. Um, but it's, I don't think that's bad. I don't think predictable plot lines are inherently bad. In this case, it's a good example of that because that's not the mystery I care about. So it leaves room for me to care about Abby. It's like, okay, so what do you do with this situation? And if you're a boring character with a predictable character arc, it's frustrating. If you're an interesting character with a predictable character arc, that can, it turns into, okay, I know where you're going to go, and I'm excited to see that. Or I know we're going to go, and oh my God, that's tragic. Please don't go that way. Um, but I care now. So Abby, from the time she opens her mouth, is a character I cared about. I, I, I can't explain entirely why. I mean, besides the fact that the actor is amazing, um, but like within 10 seconds, I was like, yep, I care about this character and I will kill everyone in the room and then myself if anyone harms her. <laughs> oh, and for a supernatural show, it was nice to have someone actually have horror at discovering a decapitated body. As yeah. someone that has played a lot of horror games and seen a lot of horror movies, the lack of fear people have over dead bodies, shocking. Mm-hmm. Like, regardless of your training or what you do. And it was a good balance, too, right? Because, like, there's there's two ways you can go with it, which is the I'm the hard-bitten cop and I've seen too much so none of this bothers me, which is meh. Or the opposite route of, like, someone walks off and throws up. Um, and it's like, that, that's too much. Um, mm-hmm. This doesn't warrant that level. But certainly, it was right. Everyone felt uneasy, uncomfortable. Um, there was a, a, a reticence. And also just because it is a kind of death that we don't see in the modern day very often outside of explicit executions or you know, uh, radicalism. We don't see decapitations just at all. We don't talk about decapitations much. So, so it's a particularly outre kind of murder on top of it. So it's the it's weird and something else – I'm jumping ahead slightly um, – that this show does really well is – it is uncanny to see a person without a head. Um, we as humans do not do well with a human-shaped figure with no head. Uh, uh, that's just something our brains is not, are not trained to recognize. Uh, and so they did a really good job of the headless horseman being creepy just by the fact, virtue of the fact that he has no head. They add other elements too, which really help. Um, but it's 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 a really good job. That could be silly because also it looks weird to have to knock your head off. But they do a good job making it pretty consistently presented as creepy and or horrific within the veins of 2013 broadcast television. And to that point, I think it was even in this first episode, is when 
the headless horseman uses that as a tactic and he's sitting in a chair when someone comes in their apartment mm -hmm. and they don't think anyone's there until he stands up because they can't see the head over the top yep. of the chair like yep. oh so it's good stuff um and also i don't i don't know how they did it like how much of that was practical effect how much of that was cgi um but I, every time I was going, okay, when this is going to look bad, and it just never really did. I was really impressed because that's got to be a hard effect to pull off. I mean, if you have the CGI budget, budget he's wearing a green mask, yeah. um, which means everyone has to react to a guy wearing a green mask, and that's hard to do. Um, and if it's practical, that guy's looking out of the hole in his chest somewhere, and that's got to be hard to do for the actor to carry. But but whichever way they did it, it always looked scary. It always looked believable. Um, I was just really impressed with that. And almost trying to think of 2013, what the CGI looked like for 2013. So I'm inclined to believe it's practical. And if it's practical, there is a horse chase that we'll be talking about shortly. Yeah. That. Um, so 2013, if I'm remembering my timeline correctly, if you're looking for CGI equivalents, that would have been 11th Doctor. You want about roughly equivalent budget, you know? And there was some moderately ropey. I mean, not all of it was bad, but there was some ropey CGI in that run. Something, something I may actually look into later. Um, what did you think of Ichabod's resurrection scene? I thought it was fantastic. Um, I thought it was the right level of creepy and silly that it needed to be. Because <laughs> um, again, that's something else this, this show, even in this first episode, is hitting really well, is that you want to be, what I like to call spooky. It's not horror, but it uses the, the trappings of horror to a slightly heightened effect. So you want something that's like slightly above kids' Halloween party level of horror for this show. And they, they nailed that. And that's a perfect example of it. It's like, it, it feels like the occult, but it's not actually the occult. And I have a note about that I, later. And did you like also how I know that we'll find out they're they're linked, I think, shortly. He and the horseman, one of them rises, the other one rises. But how their clothes are perfectly fine. Like the clothes are also yeah, yeah. given a sense of stasis and immortality with it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, actually, um do did we did we skip over John Cho. I think we're right about to hit him because we're about to talk about the police station and when she meets okay, yes. uh, Irving. But let's go into John Cho. Go, go forth, my friend. It is, it is I was good so happy to see John Cho. <laughs> to the point where I actually texted Chris. So I was like, "Oh, look! It, I didn't realize that uh, Sleepy Hollow was a crossover with with um, Cowboy Bebop. That's amazing." Um, but it's again, like that really hit me well. Is like, okay, I'm. 10 minutes into the show, um, we have a black female lead, and then just effortlessly, another police officer comes in, and it's, uh, you know, Asian-American man. Uh, and it, again, it's John Cho, which is fantastic. I just love John Cho. And I was like, this is really cool, and I bet you he's going to die in this episode. I'm never going to see him again. <laughs> I was so glad to be wrong about that. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we, we get uh, Spike Spiegel shows up. <laughs> so, I, I almost text Eddie back. It is also a crossover with the Watchmen television series because 
uh, Tom Meissen is one of the people on Jupiter with Oz and with uh, Osmando. Ah. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. He's, He's the, the male. The male yep. Oh but shit! I didn't realize it. I wanted you to have this response out air. <laughs> <laughs> so look at that crossed over with two different series. That's awesome. Awesome. And we get introduced to the new captain who we see Ichabod's being arrested and we get a sense of, we don't know where the captain's going to stand, which mm-hmm. I think is also a nice touch. It's not automatically on your side. It's not, not on your side, but wanting to get everything back in order and underway. Mm-hmm. We get Abby getting to escort Ichabod. I'm just kind of going through beats of the episode. If you'd like to do it differently, we can. No, it's fine. Um, uh, Echabod being arrested and interrogated um, sets up a moment that I expected and feared a little bit, which is that there's going to be a running joke of him not understanding modern technology. And in this episode, it's fine. In this episode, it's great, honestly. In this episode, it's the right balance of him being confused by society, but also in the interrogation scene specifically, he's also angry about it, which I liked. It's the, why is your world like this? It's stupid. And I don't understand it. And that's <laughs> actually cool because you would be, you just woke up. Everything you know has been dead for 200 years. Everyone talks with different accents because now suddenly everyone's not British and what the hell happened there and what is going on. Um, and so he's, frustrated by this and i actually liked that and i was really sad that that kind of falls away and just becomes a a literal running joke it's like this is what ichabod doesn't understand about modern society this week um so it's annoying that kind of got watered down pretty fast because in this moment i thought it could have been really cool like you could make it a running joke but also a point of of actual character tension where it is right here i i i see where you're coming from I liked it enough because it was touched on little by little in every episode in some some small fashion, but it wasn't the entire focus of the of the episode. Like I would have hated if an episode was Ichabod had to, we'll say, crack a code, and Abby was locked in somewhere, and that was the only way to save her on a computer. I would have hated that episode because that would have been Ichabod figuring out technology too quickly. Uh, fair. Um, it may have and, just been the way I watched these three episodes. Um, uh, because again, it didn't bother me the first episode. I'm like, but this can go bad. I've seen this happen before. And then the next two episodes, it, it felt a little much. Um, but again, it may have been the way I watched it. But also think, I think it comes down to the piece of technology they're interacting with. For instance, we have the horsemen who quickly learned how to use guns, but right. the gun is also oh a piece of technology that hasn't changed a whole lot from from their time here to here no but but easier to use right and i i recognize that when i saw that scene like we have the headless horseman dressed as a british redcoat holding a submachine gun i'm like okay i now know what kind of show this is (laughs) i understand completely what's happening here it's the best kind of show is what it is (laughs) It, all right. and, and, it, I, and I get that. I mean, it's like, so like, I'm not mad about that at all. Um, and I recognize also this is a show that needs a certain level of humor here, especially if you're doing, again, primetime occult history. It can't be Netflix, Sabrina, Teenage Witch, where it's just 
kind of relentlessly bleak at times. You need moments to pop to kind of, of lighten the load. Um, and Ichabod is going to be a natural gravity for that. Um, and again, like in this scene also, I, I do like the dynamic because it all sets up the Abby always has a role in this. Uh, if the writers are on top of it, because the guy got there, if the writers are on top of it, Abby will always be able to say, I'll bring the modern knowledge to this conversation um, to keep Ichabod from becoming the lead. And in this episode, you're right. Even though it's obviously Sleepy Hollow has the Headless Horseman, Ichabod Crane's going to be a figure of some interest in this show. Abby does feel like she's actually the star here. Which is, I think, how it was initially billed, too, when it was being promoted in 2013. Oh, okay. I think. Like, I'm trying to remember back to whew, a decade ago now. Um, right. And so Abby is a detective, and she's FBI adjacent detective, so she's a good detective. And Ichabod Crane is here for the occult knowledge and the occasional... That's so weird. You know, I realize the other reason why maybe it bothers me specifically is because I've played Vampire the Masquerade for too damn long in live action, and that has been like the running joke of every elder character I've ever played with. <laughs> it's the... What is a telephone? Where is the magic box where the words come out of? And it's just like, ah. So it may just be me particularly overdone with that trope because of too much live action. So I'm willing to accept that that may be the reason. Okay. Oh, I I wasn't expecting that. I loved it. Um. <laughs> so we, we have the scene. We have John Cho. We have Orlando Jones. Like, just instantly there, both being amazing, which is great to see. And when I say it was yeah. effortless, that made it all feel effortless, how you said, too. They just mm -hmm. walk in, they did their job, and then they were out. It wasn't, mm -hmm. well, it's because I'm a so-and-so and I'm doing this. It's just, this is how it flows. And we get both uh, Abby and Ichabod together. They have a little bit of banter back and forth. And even though I think off-screen they didn't get along, the chemistry between them on screen is astounding. Like, Well, in particular, um, it is chemistry that's not sexual. Uh, which, if the leads like each other and are on the same page, can be hard. Um, uh, I often point to Elementary, um, where um, uh, Jenna Lee Miller and uh, Lucy Liu have a fantastic seven-year-long friendship, uh, but it never tips over into them being a romantic interest. Uh, here, it's interesting because they have the same kind of dynamic of, like, we're going to be friends. That's all it's going to be, right? And, and that's it would it would be worse if a romantic subplot got introduced. Um, and knowing Bakshin's uh, thing, that was clearly never going to happen for lots of reasons. Um, but even just in the context of the show, it's like this is an interesting dynamic because it, there's there's a, there's a lot of layers happening here, and they do at least mention the fact that she's black, um, although they really glide over it, at least in this episode. Uh, I think that is as much as they could probably get away with in 2013. Yeah. And it, still it, try it, to it, keep it appealing to a larger demographic. No, I agree. Um, I was I was pleased that for an episode we're going to watch coming up, they do actually come back to it and tap it a little harder. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's not like it's just the – it's not like we talked about with um, uh, the Watchmen where it's like, we're going to talk about this once and never touch it again. It's like, no, they actually do kind of – go back that well as lightly as they can, but they still do actually circle back around, um, which was nice to see. 
but I also like the fact that they did deal with that pretty much out of the gate. Um, well, they had you know, to. I support sorry, abolition, sorry. and then I, I recognize this is the dynamic, but he's more offended that she's a woman than that she's actually black. And I think that on some senses, they had to do that right away. Sure. Otherwise, you people would not want to follow a potentially British person from 1781 in modern day at all. That's mm-hmm. not in twenty, not in 2010s, 2013s. Uh-uh, that doesn't fly right. anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree. So it was, given the constraints they had, it was the right call. And even when they're together, we get a little bit of chemistry. We get a little bit more about the plot. But I want to focus on after she drops Ichabod off at the asylum, how mm-hmm. she can see she doesn't really want to, but she's been ordered to, or else she'll lose her job. And how when she goes back to the sheriff's station and discovers the files, how both of them have a revelation moment at the same time, but in very distinctive ways that are pertinent in line up with how their characters are being displayed for us. Like Abby yeah. is definitely more of our detective as science person compared to Ichabod, who is more of our mystically linked fighting person. Right. No, it was it was a good balance. Um, it was a good moment of, of editing slash structure. Although I did have a chuckle. She's searching around the office trying to find things and she finds a secret filing cabinet and it just floats up. And I'm like, of course, of course it does. Of course this is what's happening here. Um, because this, this, this sheriff who's trying to hide these things is going to invest the extra money to get an, uh, uh, an air push underneath the thing. So it just pop- slowly pops up to be the most dramatically effective. Do, did you not see that this is no longer the Kurgan? This is Clancy Brown, much like us, is man of a certain age. I wouldn't want to lift that heavy-ass cabinet up to the X's. <laughs> I would spend the extra 150 bucks for my super-secret <laughs> cabinet that no one else should use but me. So it goes <laughs> whenever I open it because I'm I, doing I, cool occult mystery stuff. I appreciate if you're a part of a cool occult mystery show that occasionally you just do things for the flair and, and that's the only fucking reason you do it. <laughs> I, I'm here for that. Again, headless horseman with a submachine gun. I know what show I'm in. <laughs> and it is also nice, though, to see that. Abby realizes that there is more to her own story by reading through his files because there's a file on her and her sister, which yeah. helps her realize that maybe what happened to her was a real thing. Mm-hmm. And we get Ichabod's moment with his wife, which sort of deepens that plot too, is about why she trapped and they learned the term witness. So yep. like, oh, the sprinkling is there and, it's st- and it keeps moving. I want to talk again about pace because we have so many shows that don't keep up moving. They either have yeah. too many episodes and they have to slow it down, or they don't have enough episodes, and then they don't know what to do. No, this, um, one of the, I mean, I joked earlier about uh, some executive got an idea and some money and threw it at a bunch of teams and said, go. Um, but the advantage of a situation like that is that you know exactly what you, okay, we have, what was it, 13 episodes this season? Yeah. So we have 13 episodes. We can sit down, and this is why you need a writer's room. You can sit down and break out what needs to happen in each episode, what order needs to happen in, um, how much room do we give to this, how much room do we give to that, um, knowing that they'll have to be adjusted because of actor illnesses um, or other kind of conflicts. These, the nature of television is that you're always working against your circumstances, but they can say, we could put this thing in episode one because we know in episode 10 it's going to pay off or whatever. Um, whereas with uh, a streaming shows, sometimes it's like we're not sure how much time we're going to get. Um, or 
they it's like well i have 10 episodes but those well, some episodes are 30 minutes and some are an hour and a half um and we've t- you and i have both talked at length before about how constraints often lead to better creativity and this is a perfect example of that it's like not only do you have exactly 13 episodes that need to be exactly four to five minutes but also inside of that you need to have five acts each of those need to be a certain length because the ad breaks always happen at mm-hmm. very specific minute moments so you've got to keep the pace up because otherwise your show will fall apart yeah loved it um and then after the realization moment we have abby comes back and she cons her way to get ichabod out mm-hmm uh, a nice little touch showing that she's like risking her own career and everything else because she now believes in this. And we, I think this might've been a moment to get confirmation. That they're both witnesses sort of giving them both right. uh, a title and a status and a role they need to perform for the series going forward. And to the show's credit, um, I actually missed that. Uh, it was pretty subtle um, because the way it was, the line was delivered. It sounded like, Lowercase w witnesses. We we witnessed a thing. It's only later that it goes. No, that was a capital W witness, and that means something. And so it made me feel smart for going. Oh, I remember that scene when they did the thing, and now it connects to this other scene that, that does a thing. I feel smart for playing together, but it's actually the reverse. I'm not smart. The writers are being smart by structuring that by saying, "We'll leave this here. Walk away. We'll come back to that. Don't worry." You know. And I appreciate shows that are especially for, again, primetime television that are willing to give, let the audience do some of the work. And a lot of shows don't assume that. I mean, watch any episode of CSI. Uh, They will force feed you every single plot point because that is the show they're trying to make. Um, A show being able to go, we trust you to remember this in six weeks' time is actually, again, 2013, Social media was starting to really entrench itself as part of the watching culture, um, but not many shows were actually taking full advantage of that. Lost was one of the very early ones that started to take advantage of that, and to a bad degree. Um, so it, it's neat to see that they were actually confident enough to kind of have those quieter moments as opposed to, here's a plot point, pay attention to it. And I want to take a moment to talk about the just the term itself, witness, and how it's, for me, I, I love it because it shows if you're in a horror show and your primary role is to witness something and then deal with it, it has so many different connotations to it other than being like um, an Avenger or a so-and-so, a more active-oriented word. But Hunter, to be, yeah. And there's, there's power in that that I like as a writer. Yeah, because um, now that you bring it up, the more I think about it, I'm seeing what you're saying because witness has two sides to it. There's the, I saw a thing, which is the one side of the witness, but also there's the legal component of Mm -hmm. like, I was a witness to this and they must present evidence. Yep. Um, And that, you're right, that it's the, you're you're a capital W witness now, do you just stand by and watch or do you take an active part in justice, that of the injustice that you're watching? Um, and that leads to an interesting character conflict, just all tinged around emphasizing one word. Whereas opposed to like say, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you're a slayer. There's a pretty clear action that comes with that term. I, I think I know what's going to happen when you're a vampire slayer. I, I'm pretty sure it's going to involve vampires and it's probably not talking to them. 
Some of them I think it involves sleeping with, but you know. Well, not, that's Angel, and he's he's pouty and therefore different. And Spike. Spike is funny because Spike was a character who was never supposed to live. Uh, <laughs> and I know everyone that... loved him, so they kept him around. Uh, if it wasn't for the problematic person associated with that show, I would almost want to talk about Buffy, but no. Yeah, um, but fuck Joss Whedon. So, to speed us up a little bit, because I think we're running a little long, we do get a, a turn for John Cho's character, so yep. we can see that he's working with them. We get shenanigans with the head of the, with the, head of the horsemen. And we get finally like a full-blown confrontation with the horseman. And you see what a truly deadly, devastating force the horseman is. Like mm-hmm. I joked about a near invulnerable superhero, but it is a near invulnerable force going around your show. And the only weakness you have is that it doesn't like sunlight. Sunlight doesn't kill it. It just doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is probably the closest we'll ever get to a broadcast television version of a serial killer show. Because it has lots of that Jason Voorhees vibe, you know, the, the relentless killer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was again, it's the, this is, oh, I get it. This is a, a serial killer show. But with, you know, people from the 1700s. Okay, I, I get it. I'm on board. And then he picks up a submachine gun. And I'm like, I don't, the, okay. I, I, I see, all right, we're that show. I got it. I'm going to keep going back to that because it was such a weird moment of like, you're an axe man. You have an axe. You do that's your thing. You're an axe thing. Except for when you pick up every gun and just know how to use them. Soldier in a war. How, at what part of the 1700s they teach you how a safety works, Chris? <laughs> he, well, we'll find out in episode eight who might have told <laughs> him how it works. I, all right, right, right. We do actually get an answer to that, which is, which is fair. But in the moment, it was like, what the fuck? <laughs> but again, but it's, I, it's a silly show. Guns are intrinsically now easier to use than what they were then. So if you knew how to use a gun in 781, you could quickly learn how to use one now. So I, I give that like the biggest of gives. That is my, my easiest give. I, I'm, not, I'm not really arguing against it. It's more the fact that... I bring it up as a positive in the sense of every time we think we know what's going on with the Headless Horseman, something different happens. <laughs> and when I just watched episode one, I'm like, I do not know if this is just nonsense or if this is going somewhere. It turns out it's actually going somewhere. So I'm like, okay, it's fine. But also a certain amount of, again, it's, it's, a, it's a slightly silly show. And we get sort of towards the end, we actually get to see the, the demon that's there who kills who kills spike spiegel mm-hmm. yep. and turns back breaking a mirror like reinforcing the horror of the show and they have they're who they're attack who they believe their primary antagonist to be right right and again yeah. in my head i was like and that's last we see a john cho because i as a tv watcher know that you bring in moderately successful actors if they show up in the pilot show, they almost always die. Uh, to the show's credit, it did something with that. And that was a very nice surprise. Uh, any final comments on the pilot? Um, just that we have always been, not always, uh, we've often been pretty kind of meh on pilots and saying, it's a pilot, we recognize this. This is one of the few times where like the pilot just knocked it out of the park for me 
man. So, um, I, in in my haste, for people that have followed me on social media, you'll probably get a sense of where this is going to be recorded. But I, in my haste to go on vacation, was torn between two episodes. Uh, episode six or episode seven about what we should do. I think I originally decided episode six, but I said episode seven. Mm-hmm. So... I texted Eddie yesterday when I was catching up to watch him because I watched him all yesterday because I got back from vacation. And I'm going to give a little snippet of episode six, why I think it was important enough. And then we're really going to episode seven. Yeah. Uh, episode six, I think if I remember right, it's called Sin Eater, which effectively mm. you have Abby and Ichabod go to a baseball game. Oh, no. And they have some, for like five minutes, you have some bonding moments. And it's it's more like friend buddy stuff, building up our buddy cop dynamic between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Abby leaves. Ichabod says he's gonna. He thinks he knows how to walk back now. It's been roughly five episodes. He knows his way around Sleepy Hollow, right. and he goes to visit his wife, his wife's grave, and he gets kidnapped. Boom. Okay. You see dudes in suits trank dart Ichabod. Bam. Ichabod falls down. Um, Abby receives a vision from Katrina that Ichabod is in danger and has been awarded, so she can't find him. Mm-hmm. And so Abby goes out to try to find Ichabod. She uses, she meets up with her sister, Ginny, and they find a sin eater, um, John Noble, for anyone who knows who that oh, really? is. Oh, <laughs> really? Ah, who, who's important to the show in later. And he's, he has a power that he goes and he takes other people's sin out of them into himself. Mm-hmm. Literally the term sin eater. And he quit doing it, but Abby convinces him to do it. And he locates Ichabod, who has been kidnapped by the Freemasons, who they confirm who mm. Ichabod is. And we get an actual history of Ichabod where he changes sides from being a British soldier to a spy for Washington. Okay. Because they go into this place. There is a freed black man who is equivalently a journalist. And Ichabod is forced to torture him because Ichabod is supposedly a renowned torturer for the British Army. Oops. And during the course of the months of that, uh, they become as close as you can as friends. And he convinces Ichabod that there are, in fact, demons about Ichabod meets Katrina. And they have, I see you, you see me. We kind of love each other instantly. In the end, he frees the, uh, the black man to escape into the woods. But his commander, who ordered him, kills him. Bam. And Ichabod blames himself for his death. And that is a person that gets Ichabod to change sides and goes and joins George Washington. So he's carrying that sin within in him, which is what links him to the horseman, like that sin. Mm, okay. And during the course of the episode, the senior comes, uh, absolves him of that sin, so Ichabod and the horseman are no longer linked. Okay. So an important historical episode for people that cared about that, but it shows why they were linked together for that reason. And it also gives you, a, in 1781, 1780s, uh, a freed black man, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so, question I have for someone who's not watched the episode. Did, well, two questions. First question is, did every episode of Sleepy Hollow have a flashback to the 1700s? I want to say, I don't remember. Because I didn't watch, I, haven't, I didn't rewatch them all. I'm inclined uh, to say probably 80% of them, but not like an arrow flashback that lasts over half. That was my next question. Is it more, more or less or just as irritating as when arrow does it? No. <laughs> Because it's usually shorter and with a very specific point for it existing, at least in first season. Okay. Thanks. Because 
the way it was happening often enough to where, like with Arrow, at the start, it seemed like it had a point and then kind of became a trope. And I was like, I see this show going in that same direction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, the, the one thing I did leave out is uh, Freemasons, once they realize that who Ichabod is, Ichabod's a Freemason, so they all Freemason together. And they convince Ichabod right. that he should poison himself. But in the end, Sin Eater saves him. Because after brought Sin Eater, saves Ichabod. Yay, nobody's dead. Perhaps Sin Eaters. Uh, any other questions before we get into season one, episode seven, The Midnight Rider? I, I will say, well, let's talk about, I, I, I'll talk about my point at the beginning of episode seven, because it's relevant to that. Right. Crane discovers the Freemasons in Sleepy Hollow have been beheaded by the horsemen and realizes that the creature is seeking its own head. Irving recovers the head from the lab where it is Stymied attempts to categorize it before the horseman comes in and kills the lab assistant. And Frank manages to pull off a cunning stunt that allows him to free himself to escape alive. Mills and Crane cannot destroy the head by normal means, so they use it to lure the horseman into a magical trap built by Thomas Jefferson. Um, I resisted singing Hamilton right now. Just so you uh, know, I resisted for you. I appreciate that. Um, uh, What I was going to say a minute ago was that, um, to this show's credit, not only did it have the usual previously on thing, which helps recap, but also when... Ichabod and um, oh, why did her name just fall on my head? Um, Abby Mills. Abby, thank you. I don't know why I'm having brain parts today. Um, when Ichabod and Abby were talking slash arguing with each other at the very beginning of the show, they're also recapping everything that you just talked about. So I actually like you know, but I used to be a Freemason. Blah, 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 and then they talk about the Freemasonry, and then we have a flashback to their blood mixing, which again we're going to see again and again and again, but. For broadcast television where people like me would have maybe missed an episode, they needed to do that still in 2013. Um, so uh, I was appreciative of it in that moment because, like, okay, cool, thanks. Thank you for le- helping me get the the five episodes we missed. Uh, so and I didn't really miss much. It is so interesting how we've comp- – I think we've pretty much moved away from that. Yeah. And we're starting to slowly move back to it. So there's this um, massive digression. Um, uh, when the last latest season of The Mandalorian came out, uh, people were so worried that they did people didn't watch uh, the book of Boba Fett, which is also kind of half a season of The Mandalorian, that the Disney official YouTube channel put out a small video recapping all the relevant points so people could catch up to the new season. And in my head, the entire time I was going, we have. We solved this problem decades ago in television writing. You just mm-hmm. recap it at the start of the episode. It started the season. Um, but you're right. We've so gotten – in much the same way that I remember when WandaVision first came out, people were raving about this a radical innovation of releasing episodes one week. You know, <laughs> It's like, <laughs> have we forgotten everything? Um, so it, it's – I deeply appreciate – when a television show is going, you know what? You probably forgot some stuff. Let's just kind of do it. But, but I mean, I don't mind it when it's blunt, blunt force. We're going to reshow you the scene again. But I also like it slightly better when they work it into, here's a conversation happening. And on another level, it's also acting as a recap. Yeah. Um, so I guess I will digress a little bit that I am not a fan of the binge TV model at all. 
even mm-hmm. if I had more time, because I like to watch something and I like to think about it. Yeah, same. And if you can binge it, you just watch it back to back to back to back. And then it loses some of the thought process and like enjoyment of the show. You still have enjoyment, mm-hmm. but it's at least for me, instead of being, we'll say, uh, a 60 enjoyment, it's more like a 30, 35. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still getting it, but. Use that extra time. And also for me, um, I. I have a weird obsessive personality in the sense that um, I, I can get obsessive, but it's in short bursts. Uh, and after that short burst is over, I, I burn out on something pretty fast. Uh, it's a very important property to me where I can kind of dip out and dip in and dip out and dip in. Um, but I rarely will sit and watch something like for a week straight. It, it almost never happens. Uh, so, um, in a way, this way we structure the show works well just for my own personal view- viewing habits. Uh, but you're right. I, because of that, there are oftentimes we're watching shows that were structured to basically be watched one long movie where it's like, who is that guy again? And the show does nothing to help me remember who that person was from five episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I do like it when a show treats me smart for remembering things, but also I do want the show to occasionally hold my hand and tell me, hey, idiot, you forgot this thing. <laughs> I want to pay attention to this. <laughs> Love it. Um, so we quickly introduce the Masons in one episode, and then we quickly kill the Masons in the next episode. I'm all I'm at so, the risk of being controversial. I'm all here for murdering historical Freemasons. So, if if you don't like Freemasons, you don't have to worry; they're not here very long. <laughs> um, now I'm thinking about that Christopher Plummer movie where he played Sherlock Holmes that dealt with the Freemasons. Um, yes, but- yes, yes. And Sherlock Holmes was secretly a Freemason, but also secretly trying to murder the prince who was actually Jack the Ripper. Yes. We may have to talk about that movie someday because I, <laughs> I remember liking it quite a bit. Um, yeah, all right, but we're not here talking about that. We're talking about John Cho the Necromancer? <laughs> <laughs> not, we're not there yet. <sighs> I want to I wanna take a minute to, that they have the skull, and they've had the skull now for about seven episodes. Which of okay. itself is an impressive feat to go from like week to week. They still have this thing they don't know what to do with. So they're sort of holding on to it. They're trying to investigate it. But it also then shows, goes and plays to the fact that the Headless Horseman is a near unstoppable force. And it is, he's not overly used throughout the course of the first season. Because mm-hmm. when he shows up, it changes the entire dynamic of the entire show. And that could have been something easy to do to have him show up like constantly to keep action and everything moving, but he's strategically used. And I like that beat for the horseman. And something else I did, which I really liked um, there, there's, there's some good subversion of structure happening here um, where they send the um, skull off to be analyzed. And at some level, this is a police procedural show, right? It's like, um, so we have a certain expectation of supporting that. There's the captain who's dismissive and disgruntled. Um, and then there's going to be the forensic uh, person who's a bit quirky, but we grow to love and or find at least amusing, who gives us input on some information and moves on. And so we see that. We see a forensic person talking about how it's so weird. There's no actual organic material here. I mean, it's not how organic material works, but whatever. I get what you're trying to do, show. That's fine. Science is not really relevant here. And then he goes off and being quirky and then fucking dies. <laughs> and the horseman just murders the stock tr- supporting character. And I'm like, oh, okay then. I was not expecting it. I was genuinely expecting it. Because again, as an avid watcher of television, it's like this character has a certain role and this show's like, nope, dead. 
And but in that scene, it also gets a chance. It reinforced something that I liked and want to mention in the first episode is that the horseman is a nearly unstoppable force. But if you shoot the horseman, the, sh- the horseman stops and takes a moment to shrug off. Mm-hmm. So it shows that if you're creative, you can still have fights and encounters, not win, but survive and accomplish a mission. Like that is essential in, I think, writing good horror. Mm-hmm. And I know that we're, we've classified this as spooky, but like even in writing good horror, that is so crucial and critical. And it gives you, and it also shows how smart your characters are to have to constantly keep thinking. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, at this point, I mean, I, I'm watching it. And it's like, this show is very firmly and confidently, okay, we are a police procedural horror show um but what's interesting is that that's not an uncommon trope i mean you know kochak on some level is that um uh there's lots of police investigate spooky crimes you know x-files is really that right um twin peaks but the the show is like okay we we can't show the gore we can't show some of the psychological horror that we can because of the, the network we're on but we can do consequences. We can do stakes. And we do horror stakes. And so what's interesting is that the show consistently presents itself as a police procedural show and then keeps undermining it by presenting horror stakes, which is interesting. Um, so I want to get us fast forward a little bit now. This is also, I believe, the episode that you wanted to touch on that goes back again and talks a little bit about Sally Hemings and Ichabod's absolute denial of that is something that oh yeah 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 fathers would do yeah you're right um because they 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 they're right. they come back and they and they talk about Thomas Jefferson and the two black characters are like he owned slaves and and he's like well yeah but he really believed strongly and then they start just rolling this stuff out and to the show's credit Ichabod Crane's like. Oh, I thought I knew that guy. Right, so like he doesn't apologize for Jefferson. Like he, just, oh, I guess Jefferson was an asshole. I had no clue. <laughs> um, which is, to be fair, perfect white guy response to this situation. But um, it was interesting that the show was like, okay, we're gonna dump some real history on you, and then we're gonna have this conversation. We're not gonna play it for laughs, but we're not gonna play it deep. It's just kind of you don't know your boy as well as you think you do, and then we're gonna move on. But they're nice enough to end it with a punchline, though. Yes. Because then they say, he even stole your quote. Look at this. <laughs> right, right. It, 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 it's, a, it's a perfect timing of humor to, to pierce that balloon, but it doesn't undercut the messages happening here, which yeah, I liked. Loved it. it it's the, you, the, the, the American Revolution had some problems and was not nearly as black and white as, Amer- as schools like to teach you, um, which is a good undercurrent throughout the whole show is this the episode with um uh no no yeah it is the episode with uh, power Beard, history right. teaching moment yeah right yeah um this is also but on the flip side of that and the other problems we go is, is um this also what a show started to lose me a little bit where I, I started to worry the show didn't know what it was actually trying to do is the ongoing gag of ichabon being indignant about how p- wrong people are about paul revere um, it's like, on the one hand, it's a character moment of like, he's, 
pissed off about how he didn't know about Thomas Jefferson, so he's doubling down. So, okay, but I know this guy, right? I, I could see that character arc happening. But to the point where he's lecturing school children at length about it, to the point where Abby literally drags him off, I'm like, uh, is this supposed to be, is this guy losing his identity and knowledge of his friends supposed to be a joke? Because it's like, that's kind of tragic, actually. He's, he's, his identity is fragmenting on some level. And it's, it's played as a bit of a punchline. I was like, I, I don't know if the show is entirely sure what it's doing completely. Um, so, no, no offense to you, my friend, but I've seen several uh, cis white men break down and do very similar things in very similar situations. I'm not, I'm not saying that they don't do that because I have seen that too. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying is the show frames it as a joke. And all right, him being wrong about Paul Revere is not, is not the part that I find the problem. I, mean, I, I think it's actually cool. They're like, hey, here's some actual information. Um, and him trying to do it is fine. It was, I don't know. The, the, the tone felt off to me uh, because his actions even didn't bother me. It was just kind of... It, it happened, and then she, she drags him off, and then we go right back to the plot. There's no real unpacking of what happened there. I think that's the part that, that bugged me a little bit. It, it, it's okay. framed as if the whole moment is just a joke. Not okay. that it doesn't happen. It absolutely does. I get that. So then we move on to the very dynamic chase scene between Ichabod and the horseman, which mm-hmm. I, I love this axe. Uh, I, I forgot to mention earlier when he threw the axe at Frank and Frank dodged it in the lab and you see it cut off a stuffed bird's head. Yes. 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 Again, the running Ugh. joke of everything gets decapitated. It is a head-seeking axe for some reason. And he goes to pick it up in the lab and then here he misses Ichabod and the only reason Ichabod is alive is he goes back to get this axe. I love the fact that he has one magic weapon and he keeps going back to recover it because that is a player character move. It is, but again, that's the it, it's a that's why the the gun moment in episode one felt a bit weird to me. It's the okay, that's what I, this is what this moment is what I expected. He has an axe. He always uses the axe. The axe is his thing. So when he had the gun, it's like he had his axe on him. But like, is the axe like an avatar? Is it something that's connected to him? You know, is there a soul connection there? It, it was it was a bit muddy for me. Um, yeah. uh, so I mean, it's again, it, it, none of it's irreconcilable, and I, and I. I liked a lot of the show. It's just that there was a, a slight undercurrent of all this seems to be working, so let's keep throwing that at the wall rather than staying confidently with the formula. I felt like they were, they were getting a little nervous about it and trying to adjust the formula on the fly. I think if they could have stuck confidently with the formula they set up to one, I think it would have been slightly stronger. But again, we're talking like percentage points here. Okay. Um, then we... I'll get to, we capture the horseman in the tunnels through a little trickery and we get Thomas Jefferson's magical chamber. We also, by the end of the, by the end of this episode, Frank is fully on board with them. So you now have like your third piece of your team and it doesn't give you like the police captain that doesn't believe you is trying to shut you down, but it gives you someone with a position of authority actively helping you. Yep. Right. Which is in um, itself although- is a conversion. Yeah, no, and, and it was very cool that he and he just flipped, right? I mean, it wasn't the I didn't really see it. No, he was like, nope, I saw that that happened. You're right, my bad. Let me, how can I help you? I actually liked that. The show is just like we're not going to have this drawn out. No, he's he's flip sides. I was cool with that. 
what I was not cool with is Ichabod Crane clearly saying these are Egyptian hieroglyphics and looking at a page that was clearly not covered in Egyptian hieroglyphics. <laughs> 100% goetic writing. What are you doing? <laughs> I have played way too many Hulk role-playing games. Um, any final comments on episode seven? No, I mean, I really love the fact that they tricked the uh, Headless Horseman through um, uh, Halloween spirit knockoffs. And the use of technology, which is something that I, yes. I love adding into current day games. Because for Mikabot's time, it can only be done with magic. And now we've moved centuries ahead. And so we can te technologically do what they would have to do magically, which is a nice contrast between the two. And that's a good point, actually. Um, that was a point where I firmly cemented for me both uh, well, for it depends on me that Abby was the lead because Ichabod was about to go off in a half episode subplot to try to figure out how to get sunlight then and she's like no we're using these lights and she was right it's like no Abby is the star of this show period the show is centering that and that's why the more we talk about the more frustrated I am because like the show recognizes that the people making it didn't recognize that and what I could probably happen was the writers room knew that but the mm -hmm. executives didn't and those are probably the writers of color that they got rid of. Yep, probably. Season one, episode eight, the one that Eddie's been waiting for. Yes. Necromancer. Mules and Crane interrogate the horsemen with Andy's help, despite the dead policeman's warnings not to do so. During the interrogation, the horseman reveals himself to be Abram! Katrina's former fiance and Ichabod's friend, who was killed by Hessians and turned into the horseman by Malak! Uh, Andy, under Moloch's control, sneaks a druidic relic into the chamber, pulling it from his decaying corpse where the horseman is being held and uses it to free him and summon a bunch of Moloch's demons. This allows Moloch's hellish minions to be summoned into the chamber who escape with Brooks and the horseman in tow and give us an epic fight scene with Ginny, Abby, and Frank blowing up demons with guns. What the fuck is this show? It's fantastic right you know this is again this is what i'm kind of here for especially john cho doing his best worm tongue impression which i loved so much <laughs> i mean it, it really shows that like um uh uh he 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 he, he got some chops as an actor because he very much sounded like van brunt when he was talking to the point where when they would do when they do him in narration, I forgot it was him. Uh, that that's how good he was doing. It's like oh, he genuinely sounds like a different person, and so I'm like, oh my god, no, that's, that's still John Cho. That's amazing. Um, so it, it, it the guy I thought was going to die episode one has this great long running part, and also the the complexity of like I'm trying to fight against this, but I can't quite do it. So I'm trying to rules learn my way around a curse, which I, I love that stuff. I mean, we talked about John Constantine before. We both are, are here for rules learning your way around demonic curses. That's great. Um, so this, this episode is the epitome of what this show was meant to be for me. Right. Right. Um, my frustration with this episode is that, um, like you mentioned earlier, it's, pretty clear that Abby's sister is the trapdoor character mm -hmm. um, because 
granted, we skipped over an earlier episode with her, so I missed that. So some of this is, is how I watched this, I recognize. But from my perspective, she comes on screen, gets out of the institution or out of jail pretty fast, and almost immediately gets promoted to uh, sub-lead status, um, has all this information necessary. She becomes kind of the, the cat burglar dynamic of the team. Um, and again, because I watch television, I know they structure things. It's like, you are, you are absolutely here to end up becoming the lead character. Um, we need to get you in, on stage as fast as possible. And it, 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 that was the only part of the episode that really bugged me um, and started to show for me the wheels possibly coming off the show. Cause I'm like, I, I could see where this is probably going to go because you're, you're starting to, to second guess yourself. And uh, how quickly she gets buddy, buddy with Frank who yeah. came here to get her from what Abby said, and she gets to go on the mission with Frank. And I, it's frustrating because she is basically an arcane treasure hunter, like yeah. literally what you would need to like shift your show in a very specific way to be partnered up with Ichabod. That's why it's even more frustrating because like taking the structural reasons why it happened out of the equation, if they had built her up like this throughout the whole show equally, I would absolutely love to see a black woman who basically does a Laura Croft. You know, that would be fantastic. It was so, you know, or Indiana Jones her way through this entire show. That would be great. I would watch the hell out of that. But that's not what's happening here. And it's like, I know it's sadly, this is a case where me knowing how this stuff happens ruins it for me because I was like, I, I know where this is going and why this is happening. And so it's, it's, she's shown as being competent, not because necessarily the team is supporting a second black woman who competent on screen, but because they choose to replace the first black woman on the screen. Mm -hmm. And I do want to take a minute though, to talk about Frank and Ginny's subplot where they sort of go to stop them from destroying sort of the power station and mm -hmm. how great it was to see two black people, regardless of the reasons for this, but two black people on screen being super competent and kicking ass. Like even Absolutely. when, someone gets a drop on Frank, you get to see Frank still stop him and incapacitate that person. Mm -hmm. And you get to see Ginny knows what's going on and discover that something has already happened and getting to getting to use the resources that they have as a police department, like all of that smartly executed together. Yeah. No, Loved absolutely. seeing that. And I mean, on, on a similar bend, um, I mentioned it before, but like uh, the interrogation scene, where you get to see an Asian man be a villain and not with any orientalism attached whatsoever. He's just a straight up occult villain. And that's just really rare. Uh, and, and they, they're just like, go choose. And also it's not just even over the top villain. There, there's a, there's a, I won't say depth because the characters, it, it, it's death on the force when apocalypse. There's not a lot of character depth for that. <laughs> But rather gravitas is what I'm shooting for. Um, there, there's an amount of, I'm just going to sit and talk in a room for 20 minutes and scare the hell out of you, and it works. Um, so you have, frankly, the weakest person this whole episode is the British guy. <laughs> Everybody else is you, just swinging for the bleachers. And so... You mean your white male lead they said the show was going to be all about? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, no, no this person to get the actor, but necessarily it's more the fact that everybody else is just hitting the right level of melodrama you need for a show like this. Now that's all in the modern day. The flashback is a separate thing. And the flashback is 
exactly the right amount of Jane Austen bullshit you want for that yeah. moment, right? Hands down. And it was nice for the flashback. I'm not I'm not focusing quite as much on that because it's a flashback and we know that I've I've got a, a small window of tolerance for flashbacks. Like <laughs> big um, so I actually want to go back and focus on a little bit more on John Cho and how you, you said he was a straight up villain. I, I agree yeah. in the chamber, straight up villain. But before right. the chamber, he told them, no, he's not. If you, ta- if you take me there, this is what's going to happen. Yep. And to see like the compassion in him trying to convince Abby who he has feelings for while dealing with Ichabod, who he, he probably just hates to let them know that doing that is the worst mistake they could make. And to see that conveyed truthfully. And then to see yeah. that full vi- on villain turn of the chamber, ah, oh, tour de force. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I mean, I, I meant, I meant that in like in the end of that. But you're right. Like the lead up to it is is he's genuinely conflicted, um, and also um, his body language was very much the vibe of my body's not working right without being full on zombie. Yeah, um, it wasn't completely. It wasn't jarring but there's subtlety to how he moved like where it's like it would just sudden jerks or, or pops occasionally um to make it realize he doesn't have complete control over his body it was again just little stuff that's like oh oh my god it's amazing all right uh we've we've gone on for a bit about sleepy hollow uh you have any closing thoughts on this show as much as we've been raving about it um some of that is because that's generally we, we try to talk good about these shows um After a lot of Marvel that we've watched, it was refreshing to watch a show that was just extremely competently executed, right? I didn't want to say this up front because that sounds very damning with faint praise, but I genuinely mean it. Um, Even if I'm not into the premise of the show, sometimes I will be drawn by a show if it's just very well done at every level. It doesn't have to be excellent at every level, but if it's very well done at every level, I, I just good well done television can pull you along um and this is just well done television um i i have quibbled here and there and certainly i've pushed back on on points here and there but at the end of the day it's just really really solid and that's after watching a whole lot of streaming era stuff where that's increasingly just not true um it's very kind of highs and lows it was refreshing to go, okay, there's an episode, we're going to have an arc, there's going to be stuff in it, it's going to progress a larger thing, it's going to hit roughly the speed, you're going to hit these things at certain moments. There's a, a comfort to that, that that occurs, that allows you to enjoy the other parts of the show without having to worry about how it's all going to fit together, um, that dragged me along. I wasn't gripped by the show. I wasn't like, oh my God, I have to watch every single frame of it, but I never was bored. I never tuned out. I, I was never like, I don't care about this. At worst, a couple times, I was like only half paying attention to the screen, but I never checked out where I have straight up checked out of some of the shows we've covered previously. And much of my final thoughts were pretty much lined up with yours. And just to reinforce it, this is a show that came out in 2013. They mm-hmm. had, unlike a lot of the, I hate to do it, but like the Marvel shows and other things, they didn't have a name or a safety net that they could just ride the coattails on to get to success. And I use success in quote in uh, quotation marks, but they had to just go out and take a chance. And that is what they did. They did the best they could at the time with what they had. 
mm-hmm. and it worked. And the show got multiple seasons until until they got once they got successful. That's when they shit the bed. There's no way to put it. And for the first season, it reminds me a lot of some of the the 1990s. How we talked about the 1990 Flash show for diversity, and they had mm-hmm. like that one specific episode. How that was almost seamlessly done. Mm-hmm. This feels similar to that, except done for an entire first season. Yeah, and I wish yeah. more things could be like that. Right. It, it was. We mentioned effortless. Uh, I feel like effortless is, is a lot of my recap for this. Um, Eddie, if people are looking, nope, nope. What are we doing next week? P- p- people aren't looking for me. Not until I tell them what we're doing next week. Um, because if you want to talk about shows that went on way too long, let's talk about Supernatural. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I, I've watched a few episodes of Supernatural, um, but let's be honest. If we're going to talk about horror shows, we forgot to talk about Supernatural. Um, so, uh, but Sam, do- Sammy. Um, uh, so let's start, let's keep it to early on because I feel like early supernatural is better than later supernatural. Uh, so let's watch episode one pilot, like we always do. Um, episode season one, episode 12, faith. Then we'll jump all the way to season two, episode 20, what is and what should never be. And hopefully that'll hit a nice slice of straightforward supernatural, slightly weird supernatural and supernatural just going off the rails. So do we need to tell people that this is actually in the Watchmen movie universe for Supernatural? Wait, what? The Supernatural is in the Watchmen universe. Because Jeffrey Dean Morgan is Papa. Papa Winchester. (laughs) I thought there was just some actual crossover that I was completely unaware of. Oh, no. I was like, wait, what? No, no, no. no, no. (laughs) Because Supernatural has done weird stuff. So I was not entirely unconvinced of that. But I'm saying uh, that we're two, we're going to be two supernatural shows in, and both of those link back to Watchmen. Um, so Eddie, fantastic. if people are looking for you online or to buy some of your sweet sweet merch, be it vampire dog related, where could they find it? Vampire dogs. There you go. That's an untapped market. Um, Trademark. Uh, you can find my ah, damn it. You beat me to it. Uh, you find me uh, most of my stuff on my website, uh, pugsteady.com. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. Um, you can also find me at on Blue Sky. Um, and I recently uh, had a, a Mastodon collapse. Um, so I collapsed all my Mastodon accounts together. Uh, and I've uh, reduced a couple of other social media accounts. But if you search for Pugsteady, odds are pretty good you'll find me there. Or you can look for me in the Darker Hue Discord, where I'm currently crowing about how cheaply I have purchased the Babylon 5 dvds on ebay <laughs> uh if you're looking for me you can find me on blue skies i think i'm at darker hue on blue skies and on facebook if you want to buy some of my amazing work you can buy that on a uh, ipr's website if you're looking for me i'm likely hanging out in the discord right now chatting about how to run D for my daughter who watched a D movie repeatedly on the plane and now wants to play D, much to her father's chagrin i have finally watched a D movie and it was actually quite good it's a good movie and it is very kid friendly yes chunky and now i have to now i have to run D. um and in case anyone's <laughs> curious she wants to be a barbarian druid that's fantastic no notes 
All right. Would you uh, would you get us out of here, sir? All right. Uh, so with all that, we will see you all next week when we talk about the Juggernaut franchise that is Supernatural. Peace. Uh-huh.